Well, how about that worship set this morning? Just beautiful. And so, Christy and Ethan and the team, thank you guys for <clears throat> leading us. But what a song, that last song. There is a chasm, and we are nothing but a wretch, and God came and rescued us through Jesus. And if that doesn't pump your blood up, get you moving, get you excited and grateful, I mean, that, that is why we're here. And, and so hopefully you felt and were able to worship and to praise God for that this morning. We continue in 1 Samuel. We're coming to the end here. Don't worry, we'll get right back into 2 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 30 this morning. And so if you have a Bible and can turn there, at the end, we're at the end of this first book, but the action in the story is not slowing down. Not at all. Last week, uh, we saw God had rescued David from his mess. I mean, it must have been the highest of highs for David. Remember, he was on the battlefield with the king, King Achish and the Philistines, about to have to go and wage war against his own people. Yet, God, in his mercy, rescued him. Rescued him. He was, David was stuck in a corner. His own bad decisions put him in this situation where he had no good options. Yet, God came through. He was relieved of his duty. This is chapter 29. He was ordered by none other than the Philistine commanders and King Achish himself, go home to Ziklag. You're not fighting, so go and be at home with your family. And so this must have been a high moment. Chapter 29 ends, verse 11, it's a new morning. There's hope. I mean, you can just picture the guys clicking their heels all the way home to Ziklag. We get to go home. God has saved us. But how quickly things are about to change. You get to chapter 30, and we'll see in just a moment that in a blink of an eye, in a split second, how quickly the rug can be pulled out from under you. From the highest of highs, they are about to walk into the depths. From deliverance to deep, dark despair. And so this morning, this is where we find ourselves in chapter 30. I'll read the whole chapter. So buckle up. Verse 1. <clears throat> now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam and of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. 
For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered and pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in open country and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We have made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basor. And, when, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and the worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those of Bethel and Ramoth, of Negev and Jatir, and Aurora, and Sipmoth, and Eshtemoa, and Recall, and the cities of Jeremelites, and the city of the Kenites, and Hormah, and Borashan, and Nathak, and Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come to your word this morning, and we pray that it would change our lives. That through this word, and through 
the work of your spirit, that we would be encouraged, we would be convicted and equipped, that we would leave here your people ready to do your work wherever you take us this week. Help me, Father, as I share to be clear. Help us as we listen to not be overcome with stress or fatigue or distraction, but that we would hear from you today by your word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So I've broken down this chapter into three scenes. The bottom, I'm calling verses 1 through 8. The way out, verses 9 through 20. And then the jackpot, verses 21 through 31. And so we come into the first eight verses, and we see the Israelites, David and his men, have reached the bottom. At the end of chapter 29, they were at the top, and now we get into verse to chapter 30, and now we're at the bottom. It's startling almost to start the chapter to read about the Amalekites. I mean, we've not been focused on the Amalekites. We've been talking about the Philistines over and over and over again, and quickly we're reminded the Amalekites are out there too. If the Philistines were the number one enemy of Israel, the Amalekites are right there at a close second. They were doing what they have done for the entire history of Israel. Back at the Exodus, they were coming out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 25 tells us, tells us the Amalekites snuck in behind the Israelites and completely killed those who were lagging behind, the, the women, the children, the sick. And here, they are back at it. But this time, it's the remnant of the family who stayed in Ziklag while David and his men went with the Philistines to prepare for war. And so it's verse 3 that we start to kind of enter into the story. And as I kind of thought about this scene in verse 3, there's a movie. I can't put my finger on the movie, but it kept flashing in my mind. It feels like we've entered into a movie. I mean, the 60 miles that the men are traveling home and the joy that they must have been feeling. My wife and my children and my bed, a nice meal. Like we are, we are right there. And you can just imagine them cresting the hill. And as they get to the top, before they can see their home, they smell something. Something is burning. And they start to run. And they see their homes have been burned. And their families are gone. What, what a contrast. What a shift, a change from where they were in chapter 29 to where they are now. And I don't know if it's possible to put words to how that would have felt for David and his men. But I think verse 4 captures it just about as well as it possibly could be captured. Look at verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. They wailed. They wailed until they physically couldn't cry any longer. And I was thinking, as I was looking at this verse, have I ever been at that point weeping till I had no more strength? And thankfully, 
Not very often in my life. But I was reminded of one time where I was. Nine years ago, when we lost our son, Graham, who was just a few, week, few weeks from being viable. And Ashley had some complications. And we had to go to the hospital for a few days, several days. And eventually we were told that our son wasn't going to live. And we had to deliver our son. But at the same time that we announced his birth, we were going to be announcing his death. And we were devastated. And I remember that being in the hospital, not for a day, but for days, weeping and weeping and weeping together with Ashley. And I remember by the time our son was finally born, it was 3 a.m., and we had no more tears. We had no more strength to even cry. We had cried all the tears that we could muster. That's a phrase that I hear as a pastor. I've cried all the tears out of my body. I got a phone call just a few weeks ago from a, a, a good friend in Virginia. I haven't seen them in a while. But it wasn't one of those phone calls you like to get. He, he was in the hospital with his wife. And he said, we had just sent out Christmas cards. Just sent out Christmas cards. And on the back side of the Christmas card was a picture of their family announcing that they were expecting a baby girl. And no sooner that he told me that the mailman had picked up the cards out of their mailbox, preparing to send them all over the country, had his wife started to have complications and realized in the hospital they were told that their little girl would not, would not live. And he remembered nine years ago when Ashley and I walked this very similar road. And so he called me looking for comfort, looking for answers, looking for help. But at the end of the conversation, he said, I have no more tears. And th this is where we find David and his men coming up to their homes burned down to nothing. How are they going to respond to the tragedy? How are they going to respond to the sadness, the reality? Well, the, the, the story tells us the 600 men, first they weep and they wail, but then their sadness, their tears turn to rage. The text tells us they become bitter in soul. And what do they want to do? We will stone David. We blame David. I mean, we don't even know that they understood what had happened, who had done this. I mean, they, they don't know where to turn. And so all they can do is turn to David and, and think, you are the problem. You got us here. You brought us to Ziklag. You took us to the battlefields. And now you are the reason this has happened. And so they're searching for a scapegoat. And, and it, it's not rational. It doesn't make a lot of sense. David has done so much for these men since meeting them in the cave earlier in the book. Yet they fumed with rage. And we see their anger was destroying them, tearing them apart. But how would David respond to the tragedy? 
What, what would he do? Would he become bitter? David is not just dealing with bitterness, the text tells us, as he learns that his men, his friends are about to stone him. The text tells us he's now feeling distressed. How is David going to respond to all of this happening to him? The man of God, the future king, God, why, why are you doing this? And we see in the text, finally, David is brought into a situation where his insight can't solve the problem for him. For the last so many chapters, David has been maneuvering and thinking and making decisions based on his own insight, and it has gotten him into mess after mess after mess. And finally, he comes to a place where he can't think his way out of this. And so what does he do? Verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David, we've been waiting for this. Finally, you have turned back to God. Nowhere to go, nothing left to give, no idea what to do. And finally, he knows and he remembers, God is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my ever-present help in time of need. And he remembers this truth. And so he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. But what would that have looked like? Like, what does that mean to strengthen himself in the Lord his God? The text doesn't, the story doesn't stop to give us a little message on what that means. But I think if we go back a little bit, we can get an idea of how this happened so that we can experience it too. And so if you go back, I'll put it on the screen to 1 Samuel 23. David on the run from Saul in the wilderness of Ziph, Jonathan comes and meets him in the wilderness. And here's what happens in verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. So same type of phrase. Verse 17 is how he strengthens his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. How was he strengthened? He was reminded of the promises of God. You will not be found, David. Cling to the truth of God's word. You will be king. God's word will not fall to the ground. You need strength. Latch on to the promises of God that he has given us, given you. You will be the king. And this is when David is finding, I have no strength. My strength is only in holding onto the one that holds it all up to begin with. And then if you look at verse 7 and 8 of chapter 30, so the very next verse after David strengthens himself in the Lord his God, he, he starts to work out of that strength. He calls Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. Finally, David, how is he finding strength? He's not turning to his mind or to his feelings or to his heart. He's inquiring of God. He is seeking a way forward. God, give me your word. Teach me. Show me. I have no idea what to do. 
I don't know where to go. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to respond. God, give me your word. And it is in his word and in his promises that David is strengthened in the Lord. I remember getting off the phone with my friend a few weeks ago when he called me from the hospital. And I remembered he was asking me these questions about some of the details and how to respond to the doctors and what to do next. And I, I didn't remember how we handled this with our son, Graham. And so I remembered that one of our students in our youth group at the time had given us a little shadow box with our son's name on it so that we could put all the keepsakes, all the cards uh, into that box. And I thought maybe there will be some answers that I can share with these friends of ours. And so I went down to the basement right when I got off the phone and I realized as I opened the box that I had not ever opened the box. It had been nine years. And I blew the dust off of it. And I wept. I wept. His little hospital band and pictures and cards that our church family had sent to us. And in the box, I saw the email that we had written. We must have printed out a copy of the email that we sent to our church family, to our immediate family, and to all of our friends. And I want to just read a little portion of this letter, of this email, because I think it teaches us, it shows us how God strengthens us in the Lord through his word. So I wrote, the road that we have walked these last two days have been some of the most difficult in both of our lives. Yet God has been unexplainably close in so many ways. <clears throat> Our Father has truly sustained us and given us just the strength that we've needed. He's provided little blessings and provisions along the way that have subtly, subtly yet clearly shown his very near presence. We had an incredibly compassionate nurse. And what would God have her name be? A name that meant so much to us, Caroline. In the morning after Graham's passing, in a moment of total weakness and grief, I could only muster enough strength to click on the little brown Bible app on my phone. And what would God have the verse of the day be? A word that meant for us, meant for us so much in that moment. Staring back at me in my tears, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. And I knew in that moment, God is here. And we have no strength and no direction and no answer. Yet, God is strengthening us. He's helping us. He's giving us his word. What a gift. I didn't even have to look. I didn't know what to read that morning. And it was right there for me. The verse of the day staring at me. God talking to me. Strengthening us. And so when you get to the bottom. And when tragedy strikes. And it's going to strike. You can go one of two directions. Listen, you can be like David's men. You, you can be consumed with bitterness. And, it, and listen, it will ruin you. 
It will destroy you. Ashley and I went to a movie this, this week, which I don't know that we've not done in a long time. Years, 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 years. And we had lunch and we went to a movie. She had read a book that had a movie that had just come out about it. And so we thought we'd go see it. The name of the movie, A Man Called the Otto. It wasn't very good, so. It, um, but this fit perfectly with what I was saying. Here is a man, Otto, who has experienced tragedy. But, what, but you, you don't know that at the beginning. He is a grumpy, mean, awful neighbor, and he is awful to everyone. He works for the HOA, and he is calling people out. I mean, he is, he is awful. But as the movie kind of goes on, you start to learn the reason behind his awful, awfulness and his bitterness. And you learn about his late wife, how they were on a bus ride and she, she died, or she, she was paralyzed and she, he lost his unborn son. And the tragedy, the whole movie, he, he is on the edge from being destroyed by this great tragedy that he has faced. And it explains why he is like he is. And listen, we, we can respond to tragedy like David, like David's men, like Otto. Or we can be like David. Cling to the promises of God. My strength is his strength. His word is my way forward. I will hold the promises of God. My name is written in heaven, Luke 10, 20. I will never be left nor forsaken, Hebrews chapter 6. I am loved by God, Colossians 3.12. I am triumphant in Christ, 2 Corinthians. I am victorious in Christ, Revelations 21. I am more than a conqueror, Romans 8. I am called, 2 Timothy 1. And I am hidden with Christ with God, Colossians 3.3. 3. That's what we cling to. That's what we hold on to. And then what do we see in the story? God strengthens David, and then he gives him a way forward. He gives him a plan. He gives him direction. He gives him purpose. Go get your wife and your family, David. And this would have been surprising. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, the story doesn't tell us at this point when David is ready to, to set out to find who has taken his wife and his family. The text doesn't say he knew where he was going. Nowhere is he told that it was the Amalekites. Now, it could have been told to him and not recorded in the story, but at this point for us, we're thinking, David's got to be thinking, well, where am I going? What am I going to do? But he goes. His grief becomes his mission, and he sets out. And they get to a little brook 15 miles in their journey. Brook Basor, 200 of men, it tells us, are too exhausted. They can't continue, so they stay. At the, at the moment you read this detail in the story, you're like, that's not that helpful, or that doesn't seem that important, but it, we come back to it later in the story. And as they continue on their journey, not sure where to go, what to do, who are we going to find, how are we going to find them? Yet, when God directs, he provides the means to get there. His providence is 
clear. Verse 11, they find an Egyptian. I mean, they're just wandering in the desert. And here's a, here's a random, it seems a random guy. And they give him food and, they, and water and they promise that they won't, they won't hurt him or turn him in. And he tells them, I'm a servant to the Amalekites. And we have just burned your town. We've raided your town and we took your family. And I know where they are and I will take you there. And God, once again, just he's giving David and his men a way out, a way up, out from the bottom. And then you get to verses 21 through 31, and I'm calling it the jackpot. I mean, they, they, they have come full circle from the bottom to finding their strength in God, meeting this Egyptian, and now David is just a moment away from being right back on top. I mean, the, the, the rescue is pretty anticlimactic. I mean, it's just, it's just a few verses. You Malachite, you're drunk. That's not, that's not a hard battle. And they're partying and dancing, and David waltzes in there. I mean, this is a two-verse battle. And it is verse 19 that you can feel the blessing that David receives by the grace of God. Verse 19, nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. I mean, what a turnaround. What a blessing. What a redemption story for David and his men. But how are they going to respond to this? How are they going to respond now to this jackpot? I don't know if you saw in the news, but the Parable Lottery jackpot, it was a big one. A couple weeks ago, a lot of money. Let me, the exact amount, three billion. $1.35 billion. Guess if five or six numbers correct, and that's yours. Simple enough, right? So what do I do? I bought 200 tickets. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just calm down. I'm joking. But I did find myself thinking about it. Like, what, what, what this money would do. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. You know, I, Mill Road Project, that's done. That's done. We're building a church, and I want a pregnancy clinic, and I want a counseling center. I mean, this is going to be fun. Like, but that's a, that's a ton of money. Well, what do you do with it all? But here's, here's what I was, as I was reading about this, and, and you probably heard this, but for many people who win the lottery, it, it actually turns out to be a really bad thing for them. The, the, the people that come come back into their lives asking for money, living outside of their means, and somewhere I read that 70% of these lottery winners are broke within seven years. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a good thing long-term for these people. And so the question for us, as, as we look at the story, how, how are David and his men going to respond to the jackpot that they've just uncovered? I mean, their wives and their families, their livestock, everything. Nothing was lost. They, they've uncovered all of it. How are they going to respond to this immense blessing from God. And once again, we see this divergence. David responds differently than his men. What do his men do? They come home 
They come back to the Bayshore, the brook where the 200 men stayed. Remember that? And verse 22 says there's a group of wicked and worthless fellows. And look what they say in verse 22. All the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. In other words, they didn't fight, and so they don't get to eat. I mean, what a wicked and worthless response. Here, you have been given this blessing, and God has guided you every step of the way, that without him, you'd be lost in the desert. Yet, their response is, let's hoard it for ourselves. Yet, David gives us a much better response. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. God has given us everything. Who are we to not share with the ones who stayed behind for the baggage? I am undeserving. I am undeserving. I deserve none of this. Uh, David thinking, I am at fault for everything that's happened. It was my bad reasoning that took us to Ziklag, that took us to the battlefield that took our families from their homes. Yet God, in his undeserved grace, gives David and his men everything back, and David knows it. And so what's his response to the jackpot? I will share. I will be gracious like God has been gracious to me. And so what, what do we see in this passage? We see David, a man of God who has been shaped and changed by God so that his response to the bottom and to the top are, are different because of his experience with the faithfulness and the grace of God. And, and, and that's the lesson for us. That's the lesson for you and for me that the songs that we were singing in light of the truth that the chasm has been bridged by Jesus, it changes how we respond to tragedy. That we go to God and he gives us strength. That we don't go to bitterness, we don't go to anger, that we go to God and he will give us a way forward. And in our blessings, in our jackpots, and listen, we have a room full of people who have been blessed tremendously in so many ways, the response is, I will give and share and live with open hands because God has given me everything through Jesus Christ. I deserve nothing. Church, may this, may this describe us, whether in tragedy at the bottom, whether the jackpot at, at the top, that we would live and respond to whatever, wherever we find ourselves today. May we respond in light of the grace that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, and thank you that for David, the example of David, 
of what it looks like to respond both at the lowest of times and the highest of times. And God, I, I recognize that there probably are people here this morning who feel like they're at the bottom. God, I pray that you would strengthen them in your word and in your truth and in your promises today. That they are loved and they are forgiven and they are chosen. And so God, I pray for that person that they would find their strength in yours. And for those of us who are at the top who feel so blessed, God, I pray that we leave today with a mindset of how can we give what's been so freely given to us? How can we share and be generous and be gracious? Not to be worthless and wicked, but to be gracious. And so God, I pray that as we leave, as we go about our weeks, wherever, wherever you have us this week, God, that we would live in response to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness we found in Jesus on the cross. It's in his name we pray, amen.